One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back to Whatever Next. This is our fifth episode. And today we are joined with our second guest, Caroline. I'm your host, Addie, and I'm here with your, your co-host, Joe. Hi, I'm Joe. Um, today we will be talking to Caroline about her work creating the Catalyst Foundation um, and her experience creating also the Vietnam culture camps for families um, across the U.S. who have adopted children from Vietnam. Caroline is also an adoptive mother herself. Yeah, so um, Caroline, if you just tell us a bit about who you are and what you do, just so um, our listeners can have a little idea of um, some of the amazing stuff that has been going on with you recently. Well, my name is Caroline. I'm super excited to be here because I've known Addie since she was much younger than she <laughs> is now. So uh, um, I am a Vietnamese-American. I immigrated to, to America from Vietnam at the height of the war, uh, height of the Vietnam War, uh, in April of 1975. So I came to the States when I had just turned five years old to a refugee camp. And um, I grew up in the Midwest, in as white as a place as you could get. <laughs> and I have three brothers, one young, older, two younger, and my parents, we all immigrated and escaped Vietnam at the same time and grew up in a pretty, you know, um, it's a pretty much a, a typical Midwest immigrant story. We were sponsored by a church, um, a lot of people that supported us, helped our families get jobs and homes and, um, you know, went to school. I am the only girl, so I um, excel in kind of mess around my brothers and <laughs> um, also tried to you know, please my parents. I... Uh, grew up in a suburb of the Twin Cities, and for a long time, I felt like I was maybe one of ten people in that looked like me, and three of them were my brothers. Um, so I didn't talk a lot about racism and ethnic identity or anything like that because my parents raised us um, to be very. Um, what's the word? To be very aware that we were different, so we had to listen. They, we were told all the time that you leave the house, you are not Vietnamese. Don't tell them you're Vietnamese because of the politics, but also you know that we that was something that a lot of people you know didn't really understand, and we couldn't say we were immigrants. So I was always telling people I was Hawaiian or Mexican or I mean, anything, but. Um, and, uh, and like I said, I had no one that looked like me. I, there was one other, um, person in my class that was Vietnamese American and we kind of talked about being Vietnamese for like a minute that was like, oh yeah, sorry, that's, we kind of look the same. Um, and then I went to college and graduated in international business and my dream when I started college was to be the, uh, Mickey Mouse uh, mascot at Disney World, which did pan out. <laughs> um, but I, um, I wanted, I knew that I wanted to leave Minnesota as soon as I could. 
knew I wanted to experience the world differently than what I thought I had seen. So ironically, I chose to study abroad in Denmark, which <laughs> didn't have a lot of Asian faces either. But, <laughs> but it was the most amazing uh, gift I could have done for myself um, to say uh, my, and I've said this for a really long time, um, to say that my backyard was bigger than what I had been in, right? It was bigger than the, than the little state of Minnesota. I had gone up abroad and said, okay, I'm going to, once I'm here, I'll travel. So I was like any other typical study, study um, in quotes, because we didn't really study, but <laughs> we went to a couple of classes and we had a group of people and traveled a lot and it was, it was fantastic. And I met, you know, some great people and I came back um, more determined than ever to say that I was a different person. I was not just um, the only Asian, but I wanted to be the best Asian whatever that meant. So I um, immersed myself in minority campaigns. And I, uh, I applied for a minority exposure to corporate America um, scholarship and I got to the corporate world and I started my um, career. My first job, first adult job I was with 3M and you could get more corporate than that in Minnesota. That's where 3M was born. Um, and it was a good, it was a really good learning experience just to see if I liked business in corporate world. But again, I knew I wanted to go international, uh, whatever that meant. Um, and I was, I was always looking to travel. So um, I married very, very young. I married right out of college. I just turned 22. Like, it was crazy. I had been with this guy for nine months and decided, and I said, oh, this is a great idea. And, um, was not Vietnamese. <laughs> and I'll tell you a funny story, and I should have been the writing on the wall, right? My parents are, I wouldn't say they're strict, but they are. Um, they were concerned, uh, one, that I was dating, because I'm the only girl, so that's another, you know, typical story. But I came home with this, uh, it was my, he was my first, maybe my second boyfriend, I think my second boyfriend I had a high school boyfriend and then and then him um and I came home and they had met him only twice before I came home and said I'm engaged and my dad we we knew it was going to be trouble right so we said we're going to do this at a public place we already felt like we might not go well we're in a restaurant and uh my dad is a chef and we're in his restaurant and he comes out and we're like hey we're engaged like didn't ask permission just said we're engaged and he took this dinner roll and he didn't say anything, but he took this dinner roll and started smashing it. Didn't say a word. We're like, if I would date anything, he keeps smashing it like this. And five minutes later, with almost total silence, because I'm like, you gotta say something, right? Are you happy for us? Um, and this roll was paper thin. And then he just got up and walked away. Didn't say anything. <laughs> and then we didn't talk for we didn't talk for six months. After that, um, and my mom, she just started crying, and just, you know, my dad wasn't saying anything, and she didn't know what to do, so she started crying. My dad left, and so we're like, okay, well, I'll just leave. <laughs> um, so, fast forward to uh, I was twenty when I said, actually, when I was very about twenty five, I wanted to have children. I wanted to become a mother. I thought that mothering and caring for children was something that I loved doing. I had babysit at a very young age. I was always taking care of my brothers. So I thought, um, and I always to become a mom. So around 25, 26, I said, let's start trying to have a baby. And um, it wasn't happening. Um, so around 27, uh, well, between 20, between the ages of 26 and 27, that year-ish or so, um, it, we assumed it was infertility on my side, um, cause my, uh, husband at the time was, you know, he was fine. Um, but I didn't went, I didn't go further to get tested to see if it was something physical. I just thought it was all mental. So I kind of ignored it, um, stayed on birth control, but said, let's, you know, let's, let's do something else. And it was actually my husband's idea that said, 
let's adopt. And his first choice was let's adopt from Asia. And I'm like, why would I do that? Like, I was so shocked. Like that was even a, a choice. And he's like, really? <laughs> he said, it might be quicker. I mean, his, his thought was it'll be quicker than an open adoption. So all I knew about adoption was you could do an open adoption where you get picked out of a book and, you know, you put a profile in and you meet with the agency and then the birth parent fit any of um, picks out of a catalog of potential parents. I didn't feel really good at that. Um, and all I knew about Asian adoption was China adoptions because mm-hmm. that had been going on for so long in American history, China and Korea. And Korea, we didn't qualify for. There was a weight limit a combined weight limit of parents, or not combined, sorry, there was a combined age and a, and a weight limit for a potential parent. So I was too big. I wasn't oh, that big. Uh, I don't remember how many kilos I was, but I was overweight according to the Korean guidelines. Um, you know, overweight at 28 was not really the best thing to hear because, <laughs> because again, I don't think I, I mean, Addie's known me for a long time. I don't think I've ever been totally overweight in a very uncomfortable way it's a weird thing just yeah. to be told you're too, you're too big to adopt oh my God. um so then we look at china adoptions and china adoptions are like okay china adoptions is very i'm a very regimented type a personality you want all this control right so we knew that if we did china we, if we chose china it'd be about three years, like three years from the minute you get, you know, you start this, start into the process, new year number, new new order. Um, and so we were just about to sign uh, a paper to do a captures from China, and then Vietnam opened up. And, um, and again, it was my husband that said, "Well, should we do Vietnam?" And I'm like, "Why? <laughs> well, you're Vietnamese." <laughs> and I was like. Oh, and as weird as that sound, it wasn't until that moment that, oh, I'm Vietnamese. I could give something back to a child from Vietnam. Like, never dawned on me that that was a benefit uh, to be the ethnicity as my child. So we literally, that's how we chose Vietnam. And um, it was very unpredictable. We did nine months to get into the process, and it was about 15 months later that uh, we got a referral for the twins. So that's how I became a mom. And being a mom, me, was the best goal, the greatest goal I had for myself. I didn't know what kind of mom I was going to be. I just I wanted to be a mom. Um, and it was when I was in Vietnam meeting my children, and we were doing the referral of twin daughters that I said, uh, I, I should do something more than just become a mom. Like now I have to leave something. I have to be a good mom. I have to, and again, didn't die on me while I was going through the whole process, but it wasn't until I held them that I said, I need to be a good mom so that they have something to remember me by. Cause they're not gonna, you know, I felt like I had to get back and, and going into how I started Catalyst was when I sat that, you know, when I was in Vietnam for two and a half weeks adopting the children one, it on me that I was Vietnamese, that I'm the one that left to Vietnam and left all these children behind, left my my motherland, left who I was and who I wanted to become and who I should be behind. Granted, I was four when the war was happening, so it's not like I had a choice. But from four till 28, I didn't say I was Vietnamese. So suddenly here, not only was I became mom, but I was going to be a Vietnamese mom <laughs> and a Vietnamese person. And that was pretty heavy on me. And uh, I didn't know what that meant at all. I just knew that I felt really, really bad. I felt here was a mixed emotion of being so happy that I became a mom to I left, I left all these people. Like I, I, I was feeling, um, I think they call it kind of victims guilt. Like why was I the one to leave it? Um, why was I the one to be given all this opportunity? Um, and why, and why did I ignore who I was and who I came, where I came from for so long? 
Um, about six months after the girls came home, I was sitting downstairs doing laundry for the umpteenth million. And uh, I was watching TV and I, I thought, this is pretty cool. I'm not babysitting. These are my babies. <laughs> and I was, you know, we were doing everything and it was, I was watching a news channel that talked about um, children in a brothel. And uh, the children in the brothel were speaking Vietnamese. And yet they were in Cambodia. And I thought, that's horrible. I'm going to do something. And that's literally how I started Catalyst. <laughs> I had no idea how to run a nonprofit. I just said, that's it. I can't adopt all these children. So I'm going to do something instead. And that doing something has manifested in many different ways over the last 21 years. Wow. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's amazing. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> no, I don't know what to say now. <laughs> I think it's really interesting to hear like from you when you were, were adopting the twins, you didn't really can think that or put together your race of being Vietnamese and and them being Vietnamese and how that plays or impacts the relationship and and or what how yeah. they would be raised in, in the US. How important now do you feel like it is for them to see themselves physically in, in their mother? You know, I knew it. I knew it was important probably in the first few weeks that they were home, right? So they came home at nine, almost nine months, and they were very, very small. They were, um, they were like 12 pounds at nine months. You know, a normal newborn child is around eight pounds. I was a 10 pound baby. So, so they were very young and they were, um, you know, they were um, not sick. The very first week that they were home, they cried a lot. It was middle of winter. We had just brought them, you know, it was traumatic. We just left them from an orphanage and plopped them into the middle of Minnesota winter. Um, and most Asian babies, because of the pigment of your skin, um, are born with this temporary um, birth uh, mark, and it looks like bruises. They're in their called Mongolian spots. It's just a lack. It's from a lack of iron in prenatal care, so it manifests itself into what looks like bruises on children, and then you grow out of that. Usually, children grow out of them between two to three years after. And my girls had Mongolian spots on the back of their spine and on their arms and the back of their legs. So it looked like they had been hit a lot. Mm-hmm. So here we were brought them home and they were, we thought they were sick. Turns out they weren't sick, they're just a jet lag. But <laughs> <laughs> nevertheless, we took them to the, the clinic that first week that we were home. And my husband is white and I was Vietnamese and doctors said, What's going on here? Like instantly is saying there's a red flag, right? A doctor and nurses, this looks like bruises. And I knew from whatever training or whatever someone told me, I'm like, oh, those are Mongolian spots for the Asian from, you know, da, 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 da. And she said, like, oh, well, you would know because you're Asian. Like that was her. She didn't say it out loud, but I knew that's what she thought. Um. I thought, oh, that plays to my advantage. I don't have to explain as a white person that I beat, had not beaten my children. <laughs> Whereas in adoption training, we tell people, we tell parents, like, take a picture. Like, they literally tell you uh, when you're in Vietnam, uh, when you're at the international clinic getting your visa, getting your medical appointment for your visa, the doctor says, Make sure you take pictures of these spots. These spots will go away, but make sure you take pictures and document them. Like this is not from you beating your children. So we were we had been prepared. A white doctor in an international hospital in Vietnam told me another white doctor in another country accused me of something. Um, and she never accused us, the doctor in Minnesota, because she said, Oh, you're Asian, no. And that I took that to mean that that's going to help them because I look like them and they feel the same things they will feel. Um, I remember when they started kindergarten, I said, here's all bad things. People are going to save you. Aww. You know why I know? Because that is, 
right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you just listen. I was very, very adamant about nothing is going to be fun about going to school in a very small town in Minnesota in New York. The only other Asians were all the adoptees. We knew seven families that adopted all from Asia, and those were the only Asians in our shelter. Wow. Um, that was that was our um, that was the way we connected, the way we talked about how it impacted us as women, um, as minorities, people of color, and um, it helped. It helped them to know they were like, you know, maybe a little bit, maybe a little overprotective. Um, but this is why. On the Vietnamese side. While waiting for children, I we I will teach Vietnamese. I'll do a Vietnamese class for all the other adoptive mom, parents, and which is hilarious because I don't even know how to read Vietnamese, but I was going to teach Vietnamese. <laughs> so I was becoming Vietnamese as I was going through the adoption journey myself, and that was one of the reasons I started Culture Camp because I want to be learning about becoming an adoptive mom. I, that's that's uh that came there. <laughs> but it's totally selfish. I, I tell people all the time, and I'm sure Abby has heard this, is that I started Catalyst for completely selfish reasons, and I continue to have Catalyst for completely selfish reasons. It's, and I'm still trying. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how many years now has it been with um Culture Camp? Um we started Culture Camp in 2001. So that would have been 20, 20 years. 20 years this oh my year. God. <laughs> what, um, what, um, over the years in the past, I guess, two decades of, of working with families across the U.S. And, and around the world, what kind of patterns do you think that you've seen have changed in, in the kids, but also in the parents in like attitudes towards um, adoption, towards race, towards mental health? So when we adopted in, when Catalyst started in 1998, the internet was just kind of, I mean, the internet existed, this is how old I am. <laughs> the internet existed, but it wasn't a, it wasn't your one to go to place for all information about everything, right? Google, I, I think Google started the same year-ish. Uh, so we had email. That was really it. There was a listserv that you could join other adoptive families. But if you had a question, you kind of had to figure it out on your own, or you had to find other people that were asking the same thing. You could jump on the internet. So when Callis Culture Camp started, Culture Camp started as a as a complete camp for fans of different China. Um, FCC Families of Children from China is a very long-standing, amazing, reputable organization in the U.S. Um, and they have had held camps throughout the country uh, for decades. And I had met someone that adopted from China. She was an adoptive mom, and I said, "Hey, can I listen in, or can I sit in to one of your planning planning sessions?" And um, she was very open to it. And at the time, there was only one other camp uh, that that um, had families from that had families with children from Vietnam, and it was in Colorado. And we literally, and goes back to all about me. I couldn't afford to take our family to Colorado for this camp, so I said, "Well, I can do this." I had no idea how, <laughs> but I can do this. Like the formula that families from children from China had and did it for families children from Vietnam. And it was, we'll teach you about Vietnam. We'll teach you about your your child your child country through play, through music or song or storytelling or food. Food, of course, is easy. My parents love to cook. Um, and I come from a long line of, uh, of chefs. So food was easy. Culture, I didn't have Google, but I could ask my mom some questions and could ask my dad some questions and formulate a few things. Uh, you know, there were some songs. We, you know, there was, I think there were like three books and those were the three books we ordered. And that's what everyone learned from. And there was definitely some Vietnamese Americans, but I didn't know where they were. My first, first culture camp, we had... Um, 37 families, 
So it wasn't a lot, but it was just enough to make it feel like I can handle this. Um, And my counselors were, uh, I had 12 counselors and only three of them were Vietnamese or three of them were Asian. The rest were Caucasian. I'm like, this will be great. I just need some of that. Let's play with kids, right? I mean, I had no connection with what it was. So the first, I would say the first three years of culture camp was all about that, was let's just make it fun. We'll just talk about history, quote unquote, really basic, very whitewashed, for lack of a better word, uh, history. Nothing that you couldn't find at your, uh, you know, Barnes and Nobles or your bookstore. Um, And then at about the three-year mark, my children were three. So they were talking. And they noticed that they looked different and they noticed comments and I noticed comments. Then I was feeling very defensive, right? All the mother bear uh, figures or the mother bear uh, in me came up. And it was when they were three that I said, all right, you get the, everyone, the world is perfect somewhere else. You can get that from your books and you can get that from your own community. But if you're going to come to culture camp, we're going to talk about the hard stuff. And the hard stuff is going to be hard. The hard stuff is stuff I don't want to talk about. Um, interracial, you're in a, you're, I'm in an interracial relationship. I was, you know, there wasn't very many in the adoptive family. Um, you know, your kids might be worried about why they look different than you. Um, they might get bullied. I mean, the girls were about the average age. So again, three to four-year-old just going in kindergarten. And here I was basically scaring the crap out, which is the words I heard. <laughs> scaring the crap out of parents. Like, why are you going this direction? Like, you don't actually have to stay. And our very first guest was Bao Fi. Bao Fi is a slam poet. I don't know how I heard about him. I don't remember um, if it was through a poem, but he was a very... He was a Vietnamese immigrant um, that came to the, that lived in the projects in Minneapolis. And his whole thing was, damn, it's hard to be Vietnamese. <laughs> and damn, you know, it was a lot of swear bombs, uh, swear bombs. And it was a lot of, it sucks. It's awful. It's never going to get easy. And I had parents stand up and walk out. Like, that's never happened to me. The, the, the racism doesn't exist. Everyone loves me. Everyone loves my kid. I love my kid. I don't see color. And it was at the three-year mark that I said, from now on, every counselor has to look like our kids. It has to be an Asian face. It has to, if not all of my counselors, but most of my counselors, right? It had to be least 9%. It had to be the world that they didn't live. They already lived in a gated, small community. I call it a gated community. They may have not come from a gated community, but a small bubble where everyone around them doesn't like them. Their parents don't look like them. Their teacher, probably their group of friends. But if they come to this culture camp, they're going to feel like they don't have to explain why they don't, they look differently than the rest of their community. And so that was important to me. And um, we did, we started talking about all the stuff that makes you feel comfortable. Plus you throw in a few things and a few song things and a few fun things. Um, and, and I told Mike, so over the last 20 years, I've had over 300 counselors. 1,300 different counselors. And I had met almost 9,000 people at Coast. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. She can't, and I have had over, I think the number is 4,200 adoptees. Um, from Vietnam, China, Thailand, Korea that have come to culture camp. Um, so I feel like I know them pretty well. And what we said is that it didn't matter what I was teaching, what we were saying, it was mattered that everyone around them looked like them. That why the cultures were so important. That was why what we were teaching, who was teaching it, had to be an Asian face. Um, it had to come from a matter of... Uh, like those are expertise. Like my superpower going in was I'm gonna eat. I'm Asian, so I'm gonna to talk to you about using chopsticks because it should come from someone that looks that doesn't look like me. It was as basic as that. Um, mm-hmm. So and we have talked a lot about the hard stuff. But as kids grew up and as life got more difficult for them, so again, it related to my children. At, at fifth grade, my girls were being bullied. I was always concerned if they were the bully because I raised them to be fiercely independent. <laughs> they were the bully or if they were being bullied. And they couldn't really tell the difference because they fought back, right? They were never the, the kid that's, that walked away from being teased. They were like, well, I'll tell you. But there were many kids that sat in a corner and cried. My kids were more afraid that I was going to leave them. It already been left once in their life as part of their adopting trauma. So if I went to the grocery store, I may not come back. Like if I was going to drop off at their school, they thought I would not come back. That was there. Right? But so we were, I was starting to see kids were manifesting their trauma in many different ways. And our kids were starting to feel really alone at a very young age. So, uh, and I, uh, Addie will know, I, I am very protective of my culture camp kids, <laughs> no matter where they were born. Um, but I, I took them to be my kids, and my kids were this community of, you know, 3,000 children. Um, and I was only seeing three, 400 a year. And I was feeling like we need to talk about why your kids feel alone and feel sad and are scared to talk to you, the parent. And that's what it came down to was, my, I know my girls talked to me about stuff they were going through because I looked like, and they weren't talking to their dad because he wouldn't understand, right? Like, um, so we talked to the kids about uh, the hard stuff, the and 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 unfortunately, we had a lot of suicide attempts. So the girls were. Um, I was in Edinburgh when my first culture camp kid died by suicide. Um, and it hit us hard. You know, um, Andy was 16 and it was awful. We had known it talked about being scared and being lonely and all this bad stuff, but also um, not talking to my, not talking to your parents because you didn't want your parents to be sad. Like you, I felt that our kids, our culture camp kids had this, horrible feeling and sense of obligation to keep their parents happy because all their lives they have been told you are so lucky you're so lucky that they adopted you like oh if they're so lucky then it's my job to always keep them happy right and when Andy died it sucked really bad it sucked in a way where we knew that he wasn't going to be the only one and since Andy's death 
I started counting the number of children that would call me. I mean, I made myself and my counselors available for, you can call us anytime, no matter what. Um, so I joined any, any trendy way to talk to teens. I mean, Andy was a teen and he called me and talked to me two weeks before he died. And he was saying, I miss culture camp. And he hadn't been to culture camp for three years, three, four years. Uh, and he said, no, I got busy, but my parents said, well, we're busy. So it's not going to be a place that we go. And, um, and I, and I thought if he misses it, that must mean that he's craving that community. Right. And mm-hmm. we, you know, we, we thought that in many different ways. Um, but since Andy's death, we have had general adoptive, internationally adopted children are four times more likely to die by suicide than to die by suicide. That's not the number of attempted, right? In our culture campaign, since um, I've been cracking it, it is about six times more. And it's mostly boys. Um, but wow, we were getting calls, I was getting phone calls all the time. My children grew up with me getting phone calls and responding to, um, you know, someone heard someone say something and you reach out to them. And, I, and they have been in the car with me where I got one phone, you know, to the child saying, hang on, to borrowing their phone saying, and calling the parents and get home, you know, they're alone. Um, and that has happened, unfortunately, hundreds of times. Um, and so, it actually hasn't gotten easier. I mean, I feel the reason Culture Camp exists is just to be in a safe space. I How do you, I don't know, how do you do it? Honestly, just like, how do you do it? <laughs> like, um, yeah, just have, being able to initiate a whole dialogue in a community about mental health and suicide risk and including like adoptees in the conversation and how do you balance discussion, the heaviness of discussion about trauma impacting mental health and ultimately leading to suicide risk and also not giving up hope and the positivity of community and love? And Overall, I believe I'm a really um, hopeful person. Um, I also believe in ripping the band. I am the least patient person you know. <laughs> I don't have time for a lot of things. Uh, and as I've gotten older, in the comfort of my old age, of the right age of 51, almost 52, I have no patience for BS. <laughs> and I learned that at 30, right? Me, the adoption process almost killed me because I had to be patient for that. But I just, my... It, and my girls will tell, will tell you, I said, okay, today we're not going to use a pacifier. So I literally just threw it in the garbage. Like there was no, <laughs> we're not going to use training wheels. The training wheels. Today we're going to learn how to have a car. Today. Um, so just rip off the band-aid and go for it. And if it fails, it's okay. Because ask for um, So I never, once I decided that I personally had to take those colored glasses off. I personally had to say, this world is and will never be perfect for my children. So what am I going to do about it? I was going to make sure that was my mission in the weekend that I had this uh, concentrated audience, right? Like, you were going to listen. I always felt like I had the Oprah touch. Whatever Caroline says is going to go. Like, I'd walk into a room at culture camp and say, bedtime's at 9 o'clock. They'd be like, okay, Caroline. <laughs> it was magic. Somehow it worked. Um, but the hard stuff, the, the trauma, the, um, you know, back then it was, we talked a lot about children bonding and children not being attached to families. We didn't know it was because of trauma back, you know, 20 years ago, uh, 18, 15 years ago. Now there are so many more words and so many more social workers and therapists that have helped and healed children that are adoptees themselves. That's what I find amazing in the last 20 years, right? 
the best social workers and the best therapists that we have out there that I tap into now are adoptees or adult adoptees who went through it themselves and said, I totally understand. Um, and I depend on an Addie, you know, and Joe, I depend on you guys to help me help tell me that this worked, this didn't work or, um, or what they remember, you know, some of your favorite memories again is running around with people that look like you that has stuck with me for a really long time. But the words we have the vocabulary now to spell it, what it is instead of, Oh, she feels sad or she's mad at me or she hates, you know, like every child, my children included has screamed the words, I hate you. And I remember for a really long time, like, I'm ready. I'm ready for those words. And when it came, I was ready. <laughs> it's like, how can you hate me? I'm your mother. Um, but then it, when I look back, it wasn't really that. It was the fact that I had to acknowledge that there was a first mother. For a long time, I didn't say the word birth mother. Like, I didn't, of course, you know, my brain told me. I didn't bear these children. I am not their first mother. I am not their birth mother. But I couldn't say that they had a birth mother. And I couldn't be thankful and grateful for that first family that they had. Um, and so when the words came saying, I hate you, mom, and I couldn't respond to, I'm your mother, I couldn't say that honestly. And that was my aha. Like, oh, I get it. It's my, it's my own journey. It's my own, uh, I don't know what word, but it was my journey to have gone through also with them. Um, and so mental health for me was never, uh, I think I never said it was mental health. Like I never used those words. I just said, we got to fix what's broken. Oh, whoever, whoever it is, let, let's, I was a, I was a, one that jumped in to try to fix everything. And when it couldn't be fixed, let's talk it out, find resources. I am another superpower of mine as, as, as along with being Asian is that I know people. I don't know a lot of things, but I know people that know a lot of things. Um, and so I could find resources and that's what they needed. They needed, people needed resources. People needed help without saying the words, I need help. Like, uh, you know, and that was what, that, that's what I was there for. It was when the kids called me and said, I feel sad. I'm like, okay. Who do you want to talk to? Boy or girl, what age? You know, I was, <laughs> it was a checklist of who's the type of person that you want to talk to. And I will find out for you and they will call you tomorrow or they'll call you today. And that's what I, um, and I still do, you know, I, I still, two days ago, I got a phone like that. Okay. Who do, you, who do you want to talk to? What age? What country? And and I could do it. So, wow. You just have to do it. The choice in that conversation is a continuous conversation. And that's why I thought you can't be always said, I start the conversation, I'll give you the talking points. And then you're going to have the conversation all year. So that when you see me next year, we continue the conversation. It never ended. And of course it did when it, when the kids left, right? But for, I would say, one to three months after culture camp, it was this inundation of, I mean, it was, um, yeah, we'll call you. We'll do anything you say. <laughs> and then kind of tapers off and then you're at culture camp again and it starts all over again. So I have never ended the conversation of taking care of yourselves and being good to yourselves and talking about that stuff, making you feel uncomfortable. My job to make you cry, you feel awkward because that's just life. <laughs> Someone else will make you feel better. It wasn't going to be me. So Addie um, talked a lot about kind of um, her experience going to the culture camps, growing up as a kid with um, her sisters. And I was just curious to why your approach was kind of, because um, so Hannah and I worked for Holt this summer and we went to um, a kind of British version of a Chinese culture camp growing up as well. And that was very orientated solely towards the children. And I'm just curious to why your approach was um, so immersive and that you chose to kind of have you know everyone in the family involved. Because I'm an adoptive mom. I was an adoptee. I, I connect with some of the things adoptees are going through as far as um, 
identity because I was an immigrant. I, I came to a country that didn't really exceed. I didn't really fit in. I didn't look like everyone else. So that feeling I could connect to. And, and I knew how to address that. I didn't know how to address trauma of grief, of losing someone. Uh, I, I could connect with losing a country, but, you know, at age five, I didn't know what those words were. So I went from the angle of, I'm an adoptive mom. I better teach myself. Again, goes back to me being selfish. Who are the people I want to learn from? Those are the people that's going to come to culture camp. Those are the people that's going to talk to me. Um, we had one of one, uh, uh, one culture camp. We had a doctor that was a Vietnamese immigrant that um, was all about gaming addiction. Nothing to do with uh racism or bullying you know like that stuff but it was like and that was the year that my kids were doing this constantly with the game boy remember those <laughs> like oh i don't like what you're doing and you're not listening to my you only have x amount of screen time but i was so concerned that you know i put a lock on the the computers and i brought someone in again that just talked about two parents about how to be a better parent and i knew and i still uh knew to believe this is that parenting is a guest game. Adoptive parenting is a complete, you know, mess. <laughs> um, because, because someone else has already um, imprinted them from, a, from the womb, right? And, and I had to believe that and I had to honor that. And I didn't do that for a really long time until they were probably seven or eight but I mean, years before I could actually say the words birth parent. I had to be a better parent. And, and that's how that's the family aspect. So our culture campus, parents go one way in the morning, parents go one way, kids go one way, and then they're all back together for the family part. And then everything that happens in between is all important stuff. Um, <laughs> so that time with the parents was critical because that was when, they were, I was to people that I thought were, that could teach us. Um, but that's why. Totally selfish. <laughs> and um, what, what's up, what's the plan for next year with Culture Camp? And where do you see Culture Camp going now that, um, yeah, the kids are getting older and we're all grown <laughs> and married? <laughs> Oh, I want you guys all to come visit me in Vietnam. Um, yeah. <laughs> so because, because of, um, I'll back this up a little bit, right? So adoption in general is our families that have, that come from uh, upper middle class. So there is some wealth and, and um, privilege um, culture camp. There's a cost to it. Um, the, Adoption, there's a cost to it, unfortunately. Um, so the upper middle class that can afford adoption, can afford culture camp, can afford to travel to wherever culture camp may be, um, also can afford to travel back to the country that their child is from, right? I, I believe that, not that they, not that families have or in the past. So pre-COVID, that was what I was really pushing, like, Again, Culture Camp is a fun, amazing weekend that I honor and um, will always be super important to me. But as your kids grow up, your kids are going to be busy. You know, you're, they have lives and they have feelings. And uh, every kid is going to go through this phase of, I'm not going to Culture Camp, that's for babies. And I'm not going to Culture Camp, I'm sick of currently talking about being a bully. And uh, there's ultimate a number of variety of reasons why they don't want to go. And parents will say either you have to go and make it awful for the kid um, or, okay, fine. We won't go. And then they never come back. Um, the ones that repeat culture camp, they come back all the time, have that, um, have that fallback. Like we're only here because our friends are here. This is the only weekend we see our friends. So um Adoptions from Vietnam ended in 2008, so almost 13 years ago. So our last, and then it opened back up 2015, 
ish or something like that. It was like there was a gap, right? So the, in the Vietnam adoptees gap from forty five years ago when the war ended, said adults adoptees, then nothing until nineteen ninety four, and it opened up again from nineteen ninety four to two thousand eight, and that's where the culture camp, most of my culture camp families come from. That last child that was adopted before it closed um, is now 13, now 14, going into middle school, which I knew them since they were babies, right? So what comes with middle school and high school is a busy schedule. Um, and then all the kids are, my kids are 23. So and then you have Addie, who's married. <laughs> are you 26? Oh, yeah, I'll be 26. Um on Thursday. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, he's not going to come to culture camp and hang out with the kids unless I make her. <laughs> but Addie came back as a professional, right? So I think, and then COVID hit. And so we had two years without culture, two years without that connection. And I feel, to be completely honest, I feel like I'm not needed anymore. I feel like it's not important anymore because you've made it two years without me. I mean, it's a weird feeling. I'm going through a lot. Personally, I'm going through a lot of things. Like, you know, like my kids don't need me. They're 23. I mean, they need me, but they don't need me. Um, I have to redefine who I am. And in that, re- in, in, in that trying to figure out who I am now means I have to figure out where culture camp is now. And two years without culture camp is everyone's okay, we think. We haven't connected with them, but we think they're okay. I don't think that the numbers, literally the numbers and financially will be there for us to continue culture camp. So I want everyone to come to Vietnam. I want everyone to come back to Asia and, and I'll make all these custom tours. I moved back to Asia. I mean, that was, I mean, I moved back to Vietnam and I cut something that I thought I would never, ever do in my lifetime, live in Vietnam again. I'm here. Um, so if I can do it. You can at least come visit me when borders are opened up. <laughs> so I think maybe this will be the first time I say it in public, but I think the 2022 culture camp will be our goodbye culture camp. Um, oh my God, we'll my heart. <laughs> about how to be together again, you know, because I don't know. I mean, yeah, I don't know. I think what's amazing too, right, is because we did have internet when culture camp started and now we have zoom now I can talk to my kids all the time <laughs> whether my 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 real kids or my addy kids you know my culture camp kids I can be connected with you at any time uh we don't need to be in a space where um we feel alone anymore that I think that is one of the benefits about Maybe, maybe I'm different than everyone else. Maybe that's, uh, I believe that's one of the benefits that came out of uh, the pandemic is that we know how we've learned to connect in ways that um, we never thought would be fun anymore. Like no one thought FaceTiming and video conferencing was fun. Now it's, yeah, let's, let's do it. Let's get on Zoom or let's, you know, be together again. So I think physically, I think that's the way Culture Camp is going it's going to be really hard to say goodbye. Yeah. Well, I would just like to say (laughs) that I think you will 100% always be needed by all of the people that you've, that know you and all of the adoptees that you've made a difference in their lives and through culture camp. And I, yeah, until the end, we'll always be connected. (laughs) Thank you. And I, and I think I, in my, um, I think I know that, but I think it's, I think it's still, um, yeah, I think it's still hard. Yeah, my kids, my, my culture kids always, my kids I'll always, I'll always be ready and willing for my kids. The parents, they'll be okay. <laughs> the doctor parents will stay, the doctor parents will stay in their click. I'll, you know, drop some interesting questions along the way I'll have some interesting speakers along the way but I think maybe that's my my legacy is to have made a difference in your lives yeah yeah I I mean yeah before we started recording and thinking about leading up to the episode and everything I was just kind of reflecting back on all my experiences with culture camp and, and catalyst and just 
feel like so grateful to to have that experience and to have you in my life. No, well, thank you. That means a lot. Yeah. <laughs> to close, do you want to tell um, all of our 10 listeners <laughs> um, where they can find information about Catalyst um, and about um, where they can donate for the foundation? Sure. So what I didn't touch on at all is the re- another reason Catalyst started, um, not only for my adoptive side of life and, and my culture camp kids is to help the kids that are still in Vietnam. So we do community development, uh, humanitarian work in Vietnam for ethnic minority families, which are a really small population. I, I tend to, uh, I tend to try to make a difference in the lives of people and families that I feel don't have a voice, kids especially. Um, so the humanitarian work we do um, educates the children and provides food and shelter, basic human rights to children that um, have never had that opportunity before, because I do have hope. I do have hope that the world may suck <laughs> for a really long time, but in my little small world, I'm going to make an impact. Um, so to find Catalyst, you can find us on any social media platform under Catalyst Vietnam and also online catalystfoundation.org. Um, we're I, I'm pretty active on uh, Facebook and Instagram, so you can find me there. And uh, yeah, yeah, we're a very, very small organization. It's it's me um, that that runs everything with amazing volunteers that jump in when um, I give them the Caroline choices, which are not very many choices. <laughs> um, and then uh, I have an amazing staff here in Vietnam that carry out the mission, but. Thank you for the opportunity to talk, yeah. to ramble. I've rambled, I rambled for a whole hour. You guys didn't fall asleep. <laughs> no, it's no. amazing. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. Yeah, and thank you for creating this space. You know, again, I think that's what's so cool about you guys is that your generation is to get out there and to not be shy about talking about whatever it is that is important to talk about, um, you know, instead of instead of letting kids at all ages believe that they're all alone and feeling this way, you know, and no one else feels that way. And I think that's what you guys uh, provide is that space to say, actually, <laughs> well, we, I love we learn from people like you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. Um, Whatever Next has chosen to help support Rape Crisis Scotland uh, because of all the work that they do to help end sexual violence. They work with 17 independent local rape crisis centres spread across Scotland, as well as running a national helpline year-round to support anyone affected by sexual violence. They also work with schools to help teach consent and safe sex and campaign to change legislation and attitudes that allow sexual violence and those who practice it to prevail. Um, it goes without saying that ending sexual violence is a matter that each of us take very seriously. Um, that's why we've decided to donate the profit raised from some of the stickers that we're selling to Rape Crisis Scotland. If you want to head over to our website, um, they're on sound. Also, through our Instagram, if you just want to DM us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Whatever Next. You can find more of our episodes on Acast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. With thanks to Andy Lum for editing and mixing this episode, Whatever Next is produced by Solus Sounds. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.